Welcome to the Williamstown Church of Christ podcast. This is a sermon recording from one of our Sunday worship gatherings. We meet every Sunday at 10am on the corner of John Street and Douglas Parade, and we'd love to meet you. For more information, head to our website, willychurch.org.au. Enjoy and God bless you. Well, I'm not sure how many of you every year when the Melbourne Cup is on follow the celebrity that is invited out, the international celebrity that um, is invited every year. There's a different one invited every year. Sometimes they're well-known, sometimes they're not. This year it was Paris Jackson. She is the late Michael Jackson's daughter. Now, when I saw this week that she was the celebrity, I was thinking to myself, she's not... She's not very well-known, she's kind of B-grade celebrity. And um, she ended up sort of scandalising herself on the day she changed her outfit and it was a big deal. But um, I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that instead of Paris Jackson and the Melbourne Cup Day as international celebrity, it's Bono. It's Bono. Now, I'm sure almost every person in the room knows who Bono is, but if you don't, he's the lead singer of U2, one of the biggest bands in history. And I want you to imagine that he is the one chosen as the international celebrity on Melbourne Cup Day. So he's flown all the way over, and um, he's told your itinerary for the day, you know, your itinerary is have breakfast with these race owners, and then you're going to have canapes and brunch and and champagne with these models and then these sports celebrities and their wives and husbands and um, so on and so on. He's given a dress code for the day. It's quite specific. Um, He's given expectations. There's a whole document given to him what's expected for him on race day. And I want you to imagine Tuesday this week, cup day, that instead of showing up um, as expected, at the time as expected, at Flemington and doing all the stuff that is expected of him in this contract that he's agreed um, with Victoria Race Club to do. He walks into Flemington. He walks in one of the back entrances. And, um, and he goes into, um, into where the bookies are, the, book, um, the bookies who are doing all the, all the betting for the day. And he goes and he finds one of the most notoriously known bookies. This guy is an, is an ex-cream. He's been behind bars um, for match-fixing. So this guy is like the kind of known, dodgy, crook kind of bookie guy. Okay, so bookies often have a shady reputation, but this guy is shady, shady. And, um, and this guy is wearing his high suit. He's feeling like a fraud on the day. He's showing up only because he needs to make a living. Everyone around him, all the other bookies hate him. They think he's a con. They think he's fully dodgy, untrustworthy. And Bono goes to him. He goes right up to him and he says, you can leave what you're doing there. You can just leave it. Come, hang out with me. I want you to be one of my roadies. I want you to be one of the guys that's going to help me on tour and you're going to come with me. And the bookie says, you know, that sounds so much better than what I'm doing here. That sounds so much greater and so much more attractive than coming, going through the motions here and in doing what I'm doing and just making ends meet. So the bookie leaves his little kiosk where he's doing his, um, his um, you know, bets and his trade and he goes with Bono. 
And Bono, instead of rubbing shoulders with all these celebrities and all these A-listers in the birdcage and um, drinking amazing champagne that costs like hundreds and hundreds of dollars just for a glass, on Melbourne Cup Day, Bono and the bookie go off together. They go back to this guy's house. He lives in a shady part of the outer suburbs of Melbourne. And they just hang out all day. And they have so much fun. And the bookie, in fact, is like, during the day, he's like, oh my goodness, this is the best day I've ever had in my whole life. Um, and the guy, the guy, the bookie guy, he sends texts. He just thinks all his friends, anyone that you can think of, and he's trying to go through his whole phone contact list. And he says, come over to my house. Bono is at my house. And they all come over. And everyone just comes over to his house that's full of people. They're having the best time, best conversations. It's having the best celebration. Can you imagine the scandal? Can you imagine the furor? There'd be photos instantly all over social media, Instagram, Facebook, photos of Bono and the bookie hanging out together in the bookie's dodgy, shady suburb house. And um, there'd, there'd, um, there'd be photos, you know, really instantly of, uh, of Bono, you know, being driven by this guy and he's beaten up, you know, used out of Flemington, out of the back car park, away from the birdcage, away from the celebrities, away from all the beautiful people. And there'd be headlines plastered the next day about this and so on and so on. And eventually on this day, the CEO of the Victoria Racing Club, the guy who's right at the top of Melbourne Cup Day, he gets into his chauffeur-driven car and he says to his driver, take me to wherever Bono has gone. Take me to wherever he is. And through the powers of social media, the, the driver knows where he is. And, and so they get there um, and they arrive at the house where all the party's happening. And um, imagine Bono standing there with the guy and um, the CEO dude's found him. And Bono's standing there in this guy's house and, um, and the CEO's like, mate, what's going on? Like, we've got, we had a contract, you know, we've got you out here. You're the celebrity, you're the guy we need, you're the face of Melbourne Cup Carnival this year. And Bono says, mate, I didn't come to Melbourne. I didn't come here to go to the Melbourne Cup. I didn't come to hang out with A-list celebrities and models and sports stars. I came to find people who want a new start. I came to find people who want to be my roadies, who want to hang out with me and work with me and work for me. I didn't come for people who want to stay in their comfortable, cushy, um, you know, existences. I came for people who want something bigger. I came for people who want something fresh. You know, that whole birdcage thing, man, it's, it's a religion. It's exclusive. It's oppressive. It only includes the rich and it only includes, includes the beautiful and the popular. <coughs> I'm not doing that stuff anymore. I'm on about something much bigger than privilege and posh marquees. I am on about changing lives and giving people a new start. Can you imagine the reaction of the CEO of the Victoria Racing Club? He would be scandalised by Bono's response. Nothing in him would have expected this to happen. He would have been threatened by Bono and definitely enraged. 
Um, his whole reputation is on the line because the guy who was meant to do ABCD has done the complete opposite. Here's a man who's come along, Bono, and done something so unexpected. He's upset the apple cart of the well-to-do by doing the exact opposite of what everyone had anticipated and certainly not doing or anything of what the rich and the powerful had wanted him to do. But the CEO of the VRC, for him, there's a small voice. It's like within him, and he's not talking about it. He's not saying it out loud. But something within him would say, who is this guy? Within himself, the CEO is saying to himself, this stuff that he talks about, our marquees and celebrity germ, our faces, you know, absolutely filled with makeup and our millinery and our dresses and our suits and our expensive everything. It makes this guy, he, the way he talks, he makes it sound ridiculous. He makes it sound like what it is, a big charade. And maybe something within that man, within the CEO, would look at Bono and would say, there's something about what you're talking about that I want in on. There's something about what the ex-crim bookie gets in on in this moment, that in this day with Bono, the best day of his life, the opportunity, the generosity, the extravagance of time spent together and an extravagant friendship extended to the most unlikely of persons on that Melbourne Cup day. You know, many of the first readers of the Gospel of Mark, they were outsiders. They were like this guy, this bookie, um, on Melbourne Cup day. They were feeling like he did on the morning when he rocked up to work. And like Levi who is also called Matthew, like Peter, he's got two names, Simon, Peter, Levi, Matthew. Levi encounters Jesus in a most radical way in our passage in Mark 2. And so far, the first readers of, of Jesus' biography, which is what Mark is, it's a biography, um, for them reading Mark's account as they're reading it or maybe listening to it, as many people in, in this day would have, it would have been truly good news. Because in this passage, we meet a man, we meet Levi, who encounters a love so real and so inclusive that it scandalises almost everyone around. So we're going to dive in. We're going to look at this passage. And I think there's going to be some amazing things going to come out of it as we listen to God's um, speaking this morning. But let's just pray. God, again, we just want to open ourselves to you and say, here we are. God, maybe we, um, we feel like we're on the outside. We feel maybe we're very much on the inside. God, we're at a, a range of places in our journey with you. But we just open ourselves to you now and say, God, speak to every heart by your spirit. Amen. All right, let's look at the first part of our passage. Would you look with me on your phone or Bible in front of you? Or up on the screen, um, we're going to look at 13 to 17. Chapter 2, 13 through 17. And it says this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. And so Mark tells us there's a number of things that happened a number of times. And this is one of them. A large crowd came to him. He began to teach them. 
As he walked along, pregnant pause, thanks Janet, he saw Levi sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, so Jesus having a meal with this scumbag guy, um, there was many tax collectors and sinners eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's helpful to know a little about who Levi was in his context. We've looked at the book here already, and that helps us a lot. But um, some really helpful and interesting things to know about Levi. Levi worked for Herod Antipas. And um, if you imagine, um, I'll give an example. A couple weeks ago, I was walking along the street, and I saw a, a, um, a parking inspector. And um, if you notice these days, they're really subtly dressed. Like, almost nothing about them tells you. But anyway, I did see some kind of badge or something. And there he was walking along. I think it was somewhere in uh, Yarraville. Um, there's an area with parking controversies. Um, and he was doing tickets where he could see that a ticket was needed. Or needed. Um, and, um, and so imagine a parking inspector, but just like times the like hostility we feel often about parking inspectors, times it by like 500. And that is the kind of vibe we would have gotten if we had hung out in Jesus' day around people um, because this was the kind of vibe around people like Levi. He worked for Herod Antipas. Um, he was a kind of customs or toll officer. And um, he was pretty much the guy that everyone got angry at. And they got angry because the Roman authority of the day was crazy oppressive, and um, it was known for that. But um, he was also known for um, the fact that he would line his pockets with, um, with the profits as well of his tax um, or toll collections. So this is what tax collectors would do. It was a known thing. They were pretty wealthy people as a result of not just, you know, the, the kind of profession they were in, but also the way they went about it. So they were morally kind of corrupt guys. And, um, and so for Jesus, for a Jewish teacher to hang out with Levi, to call someone like a tax booth collector to follow Jesus, a, a Jewish rabbi, was like unspeakable. It was so controversial. Um, and so to just hang out with a tax collector would be on its own absolutely, you know, ludicrous. But to then have dinner with this guy and all his, the Bible tells us, tax collector friends and sinner friends, um, the goal of, of the day, if you're a religious person, religious type, was holiness. And so Levi was the opposite of that. But little did they know that this guy, Jesus, who Levi started hanging out with, he's going to be their holiness. He's going to be their holiness. And the holiness they were seeking was right in front of them. But ask any Pharisee about hanging out with shady people like Levi, and they would say, you know, Scripture warns against this. Um, Lots of Psalms and Proverbs talk about hanging out with the wrong kinds of people because you might be influenced by them. But here, in this passage, Jesus is influencing Levi. 
rather than the other way around. So Mark tells us, and we've been speaking about this in our series, that Levi was going about his ordinary day, his ordinary whatever you do in your day, that's what Levi was going about, his ordinary um, livelihood, collecting road tolls, another toll, another toll, here we go, here's another customer, here's another toll. Anybody else's work sometimes feel like that? Or home life? <laughs> I know motherhood can feel like that to me. I'm sure that others can identify with that. So he's going about his ordinary, mundane, everyday thing. And Jesus comes to him. Now, it's important to understand, and we've looked at this a little in our Cross and the Crown, Crown on the Cross series, it was common for people in Jesus' day to approach a rabbi and um, to see, oh, there's a wise teacher, and to approach them and request the privilege of following and shadowing them and, and learning from them. But Mark tells us in this passage, Jesus comes to Levi. Okay, that's very, very crazy and incredible. And, uh, and we don't want to lose that because sometimes it's easy, isn't it, when we read our Bible just to, oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I've read this before. I know this passage. Jesus, the incredible rabbi who is God himself, comes to Levi and he says, follow me. And immediately, um, remember it's the word that appears so many, many, many times in Mark, immediately Levi leaves his nets, he leaves his livelihood, he leaves his toll booth, and it would have been a comfortable livelihood, a comfortable existence, and he follows Jesus. And Levi wants everyone then to meet his new master. And so he has this huge dinner party, invites all his you know, friends around, friends who are also no doubt from a shady background and doing shady things with money and so on. And I'm seen as shady people by everybody else in society. And Mark records that Levi has this huge dinner party and, and this... This is what really causes scandal amongst the religious leaders. And, um, and there's, there's this theme of opposition in Mark, and we're going to be looking at this and seeing this more and more. This theme, particularly in the first eight chapters, the first half of Mark, of opposition to Jesus. It's a real theme. And there's this build-up of tension, and it's going to climax in the final week of Jesus' life, the second half of Mark, which really focuses on the, the seven days before Jesus' death. And last week at Brunch Church, uh, we looked at verse um, 7 of chapter 2, which is where Jesus makes himself equal with God, which for the religious leaders of the day was just absolutely, you know, scandalous. Here in this passage, Jesus eats with sinners. This is also scandalous and um, creates this huge tension. Um, and in the next part of our passage, we're going to look at in a couple minutes, um, Jesus' disciples weren't fasting. They weren't keeping the rules. So there's all these reasons that Mark tells us why there's opposition to Jesus. But um, coming back to the dinner party, this dinner party would have symbolised in, in the day that Jesus lived a table fellowship, kind of like when my friend from playgroup, who I've just gotten to know with her daughter, who Zoe plays with really beautifully, kind of like when we go from friends at playgroup to do you want to come over to my house and have a coffee and the girls play together? And that's kind of, in our day and age, like the leap to inviting someone to your house um, is that, you know, actually we're friends. But in a much deeper way, Jesus having this dinner, dinner party with Levi and all his friends would have just symbolised the deepest level of covenant friendship. And so this is why it causes such alarm to all the religious hoi polloi. But Jesus' answer... 
Jesus' answer to the criticism, it goes to the heart of the matter. Jesus' whole ministry, Jesus' whole life and death and resurrection was to bring wholeness and newness and restoration and redemption and inclusion, a new start. And Jesus was here to invite everyone to the most inclusive party of all. But this was confronting to the religious leaders and hence the tension that we read and can feel as we read this passage in Mark 2. Jesus upset the order of the day and the hierarchy of the day in such a big way because the people who it was really convenient to sit back smugly and be like, whoa, those people over there, the Levites of this day, you don't go near them because you wouldn't want to become like them. They're the people that Jesus extends this covenant friendship with and has dinner with in, and it's just absolutely unfathomable to the religious leaders. Let's quickly look at the, the second part of that passage, 18 onwards. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples are fasting but yours are not? Jesus says this, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? He's putting himself in the position of a bridegroom at a wedding. And weddings in Jesus' day went for seven days. So they were like amazing celebrations and just went on and on. It was awesome. Um, But Jesus says, you know, the guests, you guys, he says, cannot fast so long as he's with them, the bridegroom, me, I'm with you. But the time will come, and Jesus here anticipating his death, which he does many times in Mark, looking forward and anticipating and pointing forward to his death. Jesus says the time's going to come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. He's speaking about the crucifixion. And on that day they will fast. And then he uses these other awesome illustrations. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And um, just if they hadn't got the message, he turns to wine. If you just want to get somebody's attention in, in Jesus' day, talk about wine. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. I love this image. It's beautiful. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. You see what Jesus is getting at here. Um, imagine the tension. Imagine the scandal. It's all there. It's palpable. You can cut the air with a knife. Jesus here goes on to just absolutely nail it and just absolutely as clearly as he can speak about who he is. Jesus says, I don't fit with your idea of God. I am not the the God in flesh that you were expecting. You think you have God worked out. You think you knew the kind of king that you were waiting for. It's going to be a military king who was going to overthrow Rome and the oppressive powers of Herod. And Jesus is like, I don't fit that description. So let me tell you who I am. Jesus then uses these little many metaphors to really spell out who he is. Now, I'm not sure if fasting is your jam. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I'm not sure if sewing is your thing. We've got a few sewers in the room. I know who you are. And I'm not sure if wine is your thing. There was a time in my life when I was much younger where my parents' hobby was making wine. And um, they had some successes and they had some total fails. 
Um, I was too young to kind of have tastes of said wine, but they really got into it in a big way. And so I know they could identify with the wine illustration. But um, Jesus used these metaphors to really speak about very clearly and unashamedly who he is. And he wants to say to them, I am here to do something completely fresh, something completely new. In the first metaphor, Jesus, um, when he speaks about fasting, he corrects the religious leaders who they were all up in arms because Jesus' disciples weren't fasting. And he uses this metaphor of a wedding to try and get the message across to them. Jesus' coming is like a wedding celebration. It's a time to celebrate. And, um, and we know in scripture the, the metaphor of Jesus the bridegroom and the church is the bride. This is one that comes up again and again as we read scripture. And Jesus, um, Jesus wants to point forward here to his death to say, you know, there's going to be a time when there will be fasting, but now it's the time to celebrate because I, the bridegroom, am here with you. In his second metaphor, Jesus uses a metaphor about the patch of the new cloth. And um, if you don't know this, I didn't really know a lot about this, so I'll put my hand up and say I'm not an expert in sewing. Um, the patch of new cloth being sewn onto an old, well-worn article. Well, if you did this, the new patch, which hasn't been worn, um, on the well-loved garment, imagine like your favourite T-shirt, jacket, jeans, whatever, it would pull away the threads from the old garment and so they just don't work together. The two don't work together. And, and it, um, it's not going to be something that's sustainable um, and workable. And so, as I said, in case the religious leaders really hadn't got a point by now, Jesus used this third metaphor. Um, and a spoiler alert, they still don't get it after this third metaphor. Jesus uses it in any case. He says, you know, you wouldn't pour new wine into already used wineskins, which... Um, if you know anything about wine and the fermentation process, um, basically if you pour wine into already used wineskins, the fermentation process has already expanded the wineskins. So if you put that new wine into wineskins that have already been used, it's going to burst. It's not going to work. It's not going to fit together. The way to ferment wine is to pour it into a new unused wineskin. So if you're going home today to, to make some wine, you've already had your lesson, no need to use YouTube, you can take it from me that you're ready to go with your winemaking. But Jesus is clearly saying here, using metaphors that everyone who is listening would have understood and would have identified with, this new kingdom that I've come to usher in, it needs a new approach. It's fresh. It's not compatible with religion and the ways that you've been doing things in the past. Through this passage, um, Jesus is saying to all of the religious high and mighty, everyone who is listening in, and Jesus is saying to us, I am inviting you into so, something so much greater than religion. Something so much greater that it doesn't fit the old boxes that doesn't fit into the old way of doing things it bursts those old ways of doing things the love i have come to show crosses class divides and you know religious up and religious you know all the pure and pious and the people who are the lowest of the low and jesus says my love it invites everyone in it's extravagant and when people say yes to my invitation to to follow me like levi has just done 
Everything changes. Everything is burst open. Everything is new. The invitation is to life and life to the full. The invitation is to leave our nets, to leave our shady past, to leave the things of the past behind and to um, you know, leave behind thinking we have it all worked out. Some of us can be like that. And to follow Jesus. The invitation is, is to disentangle our lives from distraction, the things that, um, you know, that are going to easily entangle us, which scripture speaks about. And anything that's encumbering us or preventing us from following Jesus and to live like Jesus. That's the invitation. Now, I don't know where you find yourself in the story, but as I was preparing this message and um, looking over it again yesterday, I just had a sense that maybe there was, there was a couple of, of groups of people that God wants to speak to today. So I'm just going to describe that, and I'm just going to invite you to think, is that me, God? Is that me? One of the groups of people is a group of people or a person who's like Levi. You've felt like you're on the outside. You felt like you don't fit in. Um, you felt maybe that others have looked down upon you or others have seen you and, and, and you haven't felt worthy in their sight. And you felt maybe even within the church, another church or an experience of church somehow has put you on the outside. And as I prayed over this message, I had a sense God wanted to speak to you today powerfully through this scripture to say, because of me, because of me, you are in. You are like the bookie on Melbourne Cup Day, invited in to Jesus' extravagant love, invited into the best day, hanging out with the best teacher, the best master, the master who loves just unconditionally. So maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe you've, you've seen, you know, people have treated me in a way that, that I don't think is fair, but Jesus says to you, come, have dinner with me. I am God and I want to lower myself to be with you and to be in table fellowship. Remember this idea of covenant friendship over a meal was just absolutely so deep and intimate. Jesus says to you, you are in. Come and find life in me. And there's another, another type of person who I have a sense God wants to speak to today and, and um, this might be you. This person is, is someone who's been following Jesus for a long time. Maybe you've been obeying, obeying like the religious leaders. They felt that they were obeying and, and, and you know, doing the right thing under the law. But maybe you feel stuck. Maybe you feel like you're not moving forward. Maybe you've gotten comfortable in the ways you've been doing things. Um, uh, maybe you, you feel you've been coasting. Maybe this year you're just saying, I'm not moving ahead, I'm not moving forward. Um, and maybe you're feeling frustrated or, or maybe it's just today you're just sitting there thinking, that's me, that is me. You know, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says this, and it's such a beautiful um, little verse, which I love, and which it really is all about what God is doing in Scripture and through Christ. And, and Isaiah writes this, See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. 
And I have a sense that God wants to speak that passage of scripture about doing a new thing into that person today. That person who maybe feels you've been doing the right thing, you know, coming to church or, you know, reading scripture, but maybe you're stuck. Maybe you've gotten comfortable. Maybe you're just staying where you are and it feels like you're not moving forward. But Jesus says to you, Jesus comes to you in the ordinariness of a Sunday morning, in the ordinariness of a Monday arvo when you're doing dishes, in the ordinariness of a Tuesday night when you're brushing your teeth. And he says, I come to you where you are like Levi doing his tax thing. And he says, come, follow me. Come on a journey with me. We're going to move together. We're going to change together. And you're going to be transformed and it's going to be exciting and you don't know what's ahead. And that's what discipleship is because we follow a master who invites us into his extravagant love and invites us to extend that extravagant love to everyone not here today in our lives, all our neighbours and colleagues and friends and family members. And so whoever you are, Jesus says to you today, come, follow me. The fact that I called Levi, the fact that I called someone on the absolute bottom net, bottom rung of the social ladder, invites you, Barb and Tiff and Nuri and Sue, invites you to follow me. Come on a journey with me. Come and see the wholeness that I want to bring. To see the restoration, to see the inclusion that is my love for you. I'm excited. Today is the day we're launching Sunday School. We're launching this discipleship training, and this is what it's all about. It's all about training each of us into how do we follow Jesus because it's easy to read scripture and, and learn about him, but how do we do it? And so I'm excited that today's that day, and I really want to invite you into that if you haven't signed up already. Um, really want to encourage you into saying yes to an opportunity like that. We're going to pray now and I'm going to give us an opportunity to say yes as we pray. Um, whether you are Levi today, whether you are that, that I've been on the outside and, and those things I spoke about, maybe you're saying within yourself, that's me, that's me. Um, or maybe you're, you're that, that, that person who's feeling stuck Maybe you feel you've been obeying, but maybe not moving. I'm going to invite us into a place of prayer now as we, as we move with Jesus and as we say yes to Jesus. Um, and, you know, if you don't feel you fit in one, of those, in one of those camps, that's okay too because God could be doing something different, something new in you that I haven't even yet described. So let's pray. And what we're going to do, church, is... Um, just start with a moment of silence, a moment to rest in God. Let's pray.